0: This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ.
1: From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to another episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker of the Wall Street Journal editorial page. We're delighted that you're listening to this podcast. If you like it, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And please also be kind enough to leave us a favorable review. At the Journal's Editorial page, we believe passionately in free expression. And so each week on this podcast, we explore in-depth and candor with the help of a leading commentator, policymaker, expert Uh, Some major issue of topical importance, historical significance, or just something that we find deeply fascinating. This week, as war in Ukraine continues, I'm really pleased to be joined by Robert Gates, a man who has served in the United States national security field for 50 years under eight different presidents. He was Secretary of Defense most recently under both uh, President Obama and President George W. Bush, Director of the CIA and Deputy National Security Advisor under President George H.W. Bush, and Deputy Director of the CIA under Ronald Reagan. Secretary Robert Gates, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Well, obviously, we're talking about Ukraine and Russia. A lot of people have, while expressing obvious condemnation and horror at what Vladimir Putin is doing uh, in Ukraine, have said that we in the West bear some responsibility for this for – essentially provoking uh, him by being maybe a little bit too expansionist with regard to NATO. In your memoir that you wrote eight years ago, your memoir, Duty, you wrote it in 2014, you said that uh, the U.S. effort to try and bring Georgia and Ukraine into NATO uh, in 2008 at at the Bucharest summit was truly overreaching. And you said it was a case of recklessly ignoring what the Russians considered their own vital national interests. So do you think we bear some responsibility for what's unfolding right now in Ukraine? Actually,
0: I don't think so.
1: Uh, The book was written uh,
0: before uh, Russia invaded Crimea in uh, 2014. And I think what is clear looking back over the last uh, number of years is that uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, for a long time, has been determined to uh, ensure that Ukraine either stays in the Russian orbit or is brought back into the Russian orbit. And as time went by, uh, Ukraine increasingly gravitated to the West. Uh, After all, one of the things that precipitated the invasion of Crimea in 2014 and the overthrow earlier of the Russian puppet in Kiev, uh, Yanukovych, had nothing to do with NATO, but rather Ukraine's interest in joining the EU. And a deal that Yanukovych actually had cut with the EU when Putin weighed in and said, you can't do that. I'll give you $16 billion and you have to break off the talks with the EU. So I think what precipitated the invasion in February was Putin's realization that Ukraine was drifting to the West steadily, year by year, economically, and also in terms of its security relationships, even as, as, as not being a member of NATO, Ukraine's security forces were increasingly being trained by Europeans and Americans. They were uh, getting equipment from the Europeans and the U.S. And so I think Putin's determination to ensure that Ukraine remained within the Russian orbit really is the root cause of this invasion and the atrocities that we're seeing.
1: How significant a moment do you think this is? You wrote recently that um, the world's taking a, a, going to have to um, end uh, its holiday from history that we've been taking over the last 30 years. As you look at this, what do you think changes? How does it change the U.S. national security outlook?
0: I think that we have, uh, for some years now, uh, well, the last four or five years at least, understood that china is a long-term challenge that the assumptions of the last 40 years that a richer china would be a freer china that china could be brought into the global economic structures and international institutions and be a player in that context and we've come to understand that those assumptions were wrong i think that we did not have the same sense of realism with respect to Putin and Russia. And so this growing relationship between Russia and China and their hostility to the West and really the positing of an alternative model of governance was coming together of setting authoritarians against the democracies. And I think we understood that with China, but we didn't understand its full implications in Europe. And there was both the United States and the Europeans. And so what I wrote in that piece was that actually the invasion of Ukraine was a cold shower of reality that awakened the Europeans and to a lesser extent, the U.S., to the reality of Russia as a hostile force and a disruptive force uh, disrupting peace and stability in Europe. And so I think that as we came to a realization a few years ago, and not all that long ago, that our assumptions about China were wrong, I think that the invasion of Ukraine has convinced particularly the Europeans that their assumptions about how they could deal with Russia were wrong. So the invasion really has been a wake up call that lets people know we're dealing with a global phenomenon of authoritarianism and aggressive authoritarianism and that there needs to be a global strategy in terms of how to deal with it on a global basis not just with respect to China
1: do you think this alliance between Russia and China which of course they they um put into place just before Russia went into Ukraine how do you think that's likely to Unfold. I mean, Xi Jinping presumably has to be a little concerned about what he's been seeing in Ukraine, and we'll talk more about what the, the war itself in Ukraine. But do, do you think they're, they really are very much in each other's embrace now for the long term, or do you think maybe China's looking for a way to kind of somehow um, get out of it?
0: I don't think China's looking for a way to get out of it, but I believe it truly is an alliance of convenience. They both want to, they both have one common purpose, and that is to diminish American influence and power around the globe wherever and whenever they can. So they have that in common, and that's really the fundamental foundation of the relationship that they have. The situation between them has flipped from the 1950s and 60s so that now China is really the big brother in the relationship. They're the ones that have the global economic power. They're the ones that have the economic and military strength In that relationship, at least building that military strength. And so Russia is in something of a subordinate position in the relationship. That said, I think the relationship is more political and to a degree economic in terms of, I think China gets something like 15% of its energy from Russia. But I think what's been interesting with respect to Ukraine is that the Chinese have been pretty cautious about what they're actually doing. She gives Putin all kinds of uh, public uh, support, but the Chinese are being very careful uh, to avoid getting caught up in the sanctions regime against Russia. Uh, they're avoiding secondary sanctions. So Chinese banks are actually complying with the sanctions. Today, there was a news piece that the Chinese are not signing any new oil contracts with Russia. They're um, going to comply and fulfill the contracts they already have, but they're not signing any new ones. So they're very cautious. Given all the economic pressures that Xi is facing right now, he's being very cautious not to make China's economic situation worse by being caught up in the sanctions. So it's a relationship that's very um, very political, but the economic and military aspects of it I think are quite limited at this point. And while China will give Russia political support, you're not going to see them sending any troops to uh, to Ukraine.
1: How do you think what's going on in Ukraine plays into China's calculations? Whatever calculations it's it's been making about Taiwan.
0: Well, in some ways, uh, the same assumptions that Putin made, I think she has made, and I think they've been upended uh, in several ways. The first is I think she has to be astonished at the speed with which the West responded uh, with severe economic sanctions, the unanimity of the West in applying those sanctions, and not just the West, but Japan and Australia and several uh, Asian countries as well. So, the first assumption that I think she has made about the weakness of the West, the paralysis of the West, the dysfunction of the West, That's been uh, upset by the strength of uh, the Western response to the invasion. The second surprise, I think, is after all of the tens of billions of dollars that Putin has spent on his military, let's just say it hasn't proven uh, to have been very effective. And so she's got to wonder, he's done exactly the same thing, and he's got to wonder, so I wonder how good my military really is if I were to take on the Taiwanese and do I have the right kind of command and control? Do I have the right kind of equipment? Does what I have work? And how competent are my generals? How competent are my troops? So the second flawed assumption has been, how good is my army that I've spent all this money on? And the third has been the determined resistance of the Ukrainians and the enormous cost they've been able to impose on the Russians. And she's got to wonder how hard it would be on the ground in terms of the the resistance of the Taiwanese should the Chinese begin to act. So I think on at least those three scores, assumptions that uh, may have been guiding Xi's approach to the Taiwan problem, he has to have second thoughts about all of those.
1: You mentioned the struggles that uh, Russia's obviously been having in the strength of the Ukrainian resistance. What have we learned in the last six weeks about Russia's actual military capabilities? I think we, you know, second largest army in the world, you've been dealing with a threat from Russia, both in the Cold War and the post-Cold War for decades, and we've always had perhaps a sense of Russian, you know, military might. What have we learned about Russia's actual military capabilities in the last? Have you been surprised by how much they've clearly struggled in Ukraine? I think everybody
0: has been surprised at how poorly they have performed, presumably from Putin. Uh, on to the rest of the world. Uh, first of all, I think it's important to understand and to make clear that there's no reason to doubt the uh, capabilities of Russia's strategic uh, nuclear capabilities, their they're ballistic missile submarines, their long-range bombers, uh, their land-based missiles. So I think it would be a mistake to extrapolate from what's happened to their ground forces in Ukraine to think Russia was kind of a paper tiger. They still have extraordinary, uh, strategic nuclear capabilities. But as far as the ground troops are concerned, I mean, it, it's just, it's been one failure after another, the failure of command and control, the failure to seize control of the airspace, the underestimation of the Ukrainians, the tactics that they've used that have exposed their convoys to such effective attacks, the challenges of their logistical system, uh, Russia's probably the most railroad-dependent army in the world. So the Russian army basically is designed to fight in Russia. And if you get very far from their rail depots, they begin to have significant problems because, among other things, they have a lot fewer trucks per unit than Western armies, and particularly the American army. So I think one of the reasons for their failure in northern Ukraine has been they got beyond their reach in terms of logistical support that's much less of a problem in eastern ukraine and in the southeastern part of ukraine where they're much closer to supply depots in in crimea and and elsewhere and close to the russian border so i think the logistics uh, failures the amateurism of their troops you know the russian military is one of those handful in in the world that doesn't have non commissioned officers so one of the reasons you've had all these generals being killed is because they have to be at the front. Officers basically get involved at a level that would be handled by NCOs in uh, American and other, and other militaries. So there are just a lot of flaws, and they're not all, and I might add, the equipment hasn't operated all that well, too. And a lot of the tanks that they've been using are actually older model T-72s. So, I mean, on, on count after count, the Russian military has performed poorly.
1: We've got to take a short break there, but when we come back, we'll have more with Robert Gates on Russia, Ukraine, and the New World Order. Stay with us. ADP knows anything you hear, anything you don't hear, anything you kind of heard, anything you weren't supposed to hear and now have to pretend like you didn't can change the world of work. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward thinking solutions to take on the next anything welcome back we're talking with robert gates former secretary of defense and head of the cia about russia ukraine and the new world order we've been obviously supplying ukraine stepping up supplies to ukraine of weapons the west has obviously imposed these um stringent sanctions uh, or mostly stringent sanctions we obviously europe continues to import uh, a lot of russian gas but let's look in particular what we've been doing with ukraine and, and the weapons we're supplying are we doing enough have we been doing enough is there more we could do well i think that the answer is yes I think that the supply
0: of weapons, and I think that a lot of people would argue, I would argue, the administration could have provided more weapons earlier to Ukraine, was overly cautious in that regard. But beginning last December and thereabouts, the supply of weapons has largely been small unit kinds of weapons, uh, anticipating that the Russian army would move very quickly into Ukraine And that most of the fighting would be by small units in almost a counterinsurgency kind of attack. So the Javelin anti-tank weapons and the Stinger missiles for aircraft and the um, switchblade lethal drones and so on are all kind of small unit kinds of weapons. And I think now there needs to be a transition, given the success of the Ukrainians so far, They need heavier weapons. They need more armor. They need more tanks. Now, the Czechs have, apparently, according to the news, the Czechs have agreed to uh, provide them with tanks, uh, Soviet-built tanks. You know, the Ukrainians are basically trained on Soviet equipment. So I think the next step is for the East Europeans in particular, whose military has a lot of uh, Soviet heavier weapons to provide those weapons to Ukraine, and then we can backfill them with American-built equipment. So the Poles, for example, have just bought 250 uh, Abrams tanks. So if the Poles have T-72s and other Soviet tanks, then to provide those to uh, to the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians have seized, according to reports, 150 to 175 Russian tanks, but they need a lot more. So that kind of thing and 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 more effective, heavier uh, air defense capabilities. Again, there are reports of the Slovaks providing um, Soviet-built air defense systems, the S-300, to the Ukrainians. So there needs to be a lot more of that at this point as the fighting moves more to the east.
1: But you would agree with um, President Biden, indeed pretty well everybody in NATO, that, um, that a no-fly zone would not be a smart idea, it would be, would be an escalation too far
0: I do. Uh, I think we do need to uh, avoid the possibility of a direct encounter with the Russians, because once that happens, it's not clear what, how the escalation may work. I, I think we cannot be deterred from doing what we need to do to help the Ukrainians on the ground and with their defenses by Putin's threats of nuclear or chemical uh, weapons, I think the odds of him using those are very, very low for a variety of reasons. Uh, and, and it also has a lesson for uh, other places, including China. You know, if all they have to do is threaten to use nuclear weapons and we back off, then that makes the future pretty dark indeed. So I think we have to, we have to do what we can to avoid a direct
1: conflict, but we shouldn't be deterred from providing that help because of those threats. It's interesting you say you think it's unlikely he would use nuclear or biological chemical weapons. If the war continues to go badly for him, and in fact, I wanted to come on in a minute to talk about what our objectives should be, do you think the risk in general that that Putin would escalate if things really go really badly are pretty small? Or, or, or let me put it another way. What if, if we were to get more directly involved? If, If, for example, we stepped up – uh, supplies of military equipment, more offensive weapons. You, you, again, you still think that he would be very disinclined to escalate to that level of, uh, of use of weapons?
0: I do. Biological weapons are basically uncontrollable. Once, once you let them loose, you have no idea where they're going to go. They're a little bit like cyber in that regard. Once you plant a bot or something, you can't limit where it goes. And the same thing is true of biological weapons. There is no apparent military value to the use of a tactical nuclear weapon or chemical weapons. Other than the Ukrainian forces in the east, there are no large military forces where you could have a strategic advantage, gain a strategic advantage by the use of a weapon of mass destruction. When it comes to nuclear weapons, the winds blow to the east. So anything they set off in eastern Ukraine is going to end up in Russia. And so the only purpose of a weapon of mass destruction at this point is a terror weapon to break the will of the Ukrainian people. I think what we have seen in terms of the atrocities and so on, I think breaking the will of the Ukrainian people at this point is potentially in the past. I think if they needed any more steel in their spine, and I don't think they did, the revelations of these atrocities will have further hardened the Ukrainians, including the Ukrainians that were pro-Russian when this war started or before this war started. Particularly those in the east. When you see what's happened to Kharkiv and 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 so on, those are the reasons why I think the use of a weapon of mass destruction is uh, is, is the the odds are pretty low.
1: Is there anything short of a, a Russian attack on a NATO country that you think could prompt the west prompt nato to escalate itself is there anything within ukraine um some sort of you know again you've ruled out you think he's unlikely to use um, wmd but but some you know even worse than the kind of war crimes that we're obviously seeing is there anything is anything at all that could so shock the conscience of the west and of nato that it would say you know what we've actually we have got to get more directly involved we've either got to dramatically step up weapons. Um, Supplies, Or we've actually got to take some military action to stop him doing this. Do you think there's anything he could do that would produce that response? So my view is
0: that the path for escalation on the part of NATO is in the weapons that they supply uh, to the Ukrainians. And you could get more and more sophisticated weapons and many more of those weapons. You know, I think that barring Russian action against a NATO country, I don't see us getting directly militarily involved in Ukraine. I think President Biden properly worries about what we were just talking about, and that is an escalation that spins out of control and leads to a war between Russia and the West. And And I think... I think there's a great reluctance to take that step to start down that path here in the United States, even more so in Europe.
1: Do you have a strong sense of what the West, what the US and NATO's objective is in this war? Do we do we have a clear sense of what we what we want to achieve? Do we want we want the Russian we want the Russians to be defeated, obviously, but but what would that look like? Do we have do you have a good sense of what that is?
0: Well, I think that we will largely defer to President Zelensky about what a what an acceptable outcome to this conflict is. I think we're in it for, I think Ukraine is in it for quite some time to come. Uh, Clearly, Putin is reorienting, resetting his military to focus on the Donbass. They started with these pro-Russian republics, the Republic of uh, Luhansk and the Republic of Donetsk. But those two republics only represent about a third to a half um, of the whole Donbass. And I think Putin is now looking at seizing all of the Donbass and perhaps the Black Sea coast all the way down to Odessa. That basically turns Ukraine into a landlocked country. And I think Putin is prepared to, uh, and and it's one of the reasons the Russians have been so determined to take uh, Mariupol. So I think that uh, this war is going to now be focused more on, on the east, on the Donbas, and on the Black Sea coast. Although I think just to keep the Ukrainians off balance and to continue imposing more harm on Ukraine, I think the Russians will continue their bombing. I think they'll continue their missile attacks on other parts of Ukraine. In effect, to continue economic paralysis of Ukraine because of all the disruption caused by the attacks, but to focus more on the east and on the on the black sea coast so i i see this war unfortunately likely to continue for for some time
1: uh, you say obviously it's up to president zelensky what terms uh, on the terms on which this war in, ends say putin were to get somehow be able to extract recognition by ukraine of the annexation of crimea some sort of independent semi-independent semi-autonomous status for those regions in the donbass that we talked about and a kind of commitment to international neutrality by Ukraine, that would represent a messy, admittedly a bloody and expensive, but it would represent a victory, wouldn't it, for Putin's use of force? We have to keep reminding the world what Putin's original objectives were, uh,
0: which was replacement of the government in Kyiv, bringing all of Ukraine under Russian control and making sure that Ukraine's adrift toward the West uh, was halted and that it became more of the Slavic core of Russia, including Russia itself, Ukraine, and Belarus. First of all, I don't think at this point the the Ukrainians are prepared to formally recognize Russian control or sovereignty over any part of Ukraine, including Crimea. And so I think what you may be looking at is the kind of of this sort of ending up in the kind of conflict that we have seen in eastern Ukraine since 2014, where there is still conflict, perhaps not at the same level, but Russian control of the various areas that we've talked about. I think the Ukrainians are prepared to uh, commit that they would not join NATO and that they would remain neutral. I think they are prepared to commit... To limitations on certain kinds of weapons uh, being developed by or deployed by Ukraine. But I think when it comes to Ukraine's territory, I don't think they're prepared to formally concede anything. And so what you may have is Russia in control of the eastern part of Ukraine, but no formal treaty or no formal agreement wouldn't be exactly a frozen conflict because I think the fighting would continue and the Ukrainians will continue to resist. So I I think that the prospects for any kind of a clean outcome to this, where it basically just all stops, and particularly the Russians withdrawing in significant measure, especially from the East, I think that's a low probability
1: couple of final questions, uh, Secretary. You fi- famously said in your memoir, I think it was in 2014, that Joe Biden had been wrong on every major foreign policy issue in the last 40 years. We-, we are now obviously in the facing one of the biggest foreign policy challenges of the last, certainly of the last decade or two. Do you think he's getting this one right? I
0: think, as I said earlier, I think that the administration was slow to
1: um,
0: um, be willing to provide weapons uh, and very cautious uh, with respect to the weapons before the war started or before early this year, late last year. I think that there have been several instances in which the administration's actions on particular kinds of sanctions have actually followed pressure from the Congress, where the Congress has been more hawkish, more willing to impose heavier penalties on Russia earlier than the administration. So the administration there on several occasions Uh, where I think the administration has only acted under considerable pressure from the Congress. All that said, I think that the way, overall, the way the administration has handled this, beginning with the release of intelligence last fall to where we are today, and uh, I think has been pretty good.
1: Finally, Secretary Gates, how do you see things from here? You already said you think this war is, we're probably in for a prolonged war between Russia and Ukraine. We talked a lot about the global strategic um reassessment that needs to be done what people talk about a new cold war or in some kind of new world order how do you see things whatever the outcome of this war how should the u.s now um approach this really i think significantly change conditions you've talked about the need for a new global strategy what would that look like
0: well, I think it's, I think it's in, two, uh, in two buckets. The first and probably most important is um, understanding that we face a global challenge and that we need to have strong military presence and capabilities uh, in Europe uh, and outside of Asia. And we need to continue uh, the heavy emphasis on building up our forces and capabilities in Asia as well. I agree with those who say we need a larger defense budget, but I think there always has to be a second component of that, and that is there's a huge amount of waste in the Defense Department. And I think a larger defense budget and the long-term prospect of of uh, another arms race means there also has to be significant reform within the Defense Department so that the money that is being allocated is actually being focused on military capabilities and not on uh, overhead and, and getting rid of uh, useless programs and other kinds of wasted money. So the, the military piece of it is very, very important. But the other piece is, as we've seen with the release of the intelligence, this is also reminiscent of the Cold War in the sense that a lot of the contests will be fought using non-military instruments of power. I think that in strategic communications, the administration has effectively used intelligence since last December, to alert the world what was going on, and to seize the narrative about what is happening in Ukraine and exactly what the Russians intend and then uh, what they're doing. But we're now in a larger uh, contest, and it's basically authoritarianism versus the democracies. And we have to seize that message. We have to broaden our strategic communications capability. We have to pay more attention to the middle powers, to India, to the Middle East, to the UAE, uh, to Egypt, to Saudi Arabia the chinese are now the largest trading partner in virtually every country in latin america similarly in in africa so our economic uh, and security assistance to the middle states is really important they've sort of straddled the ukraine russia Uh, Western divide uh, to this point, and we need to get them more on our side. And that means more non-military means, but also security assistance. So there are a lot of tools in our arsenal that we've let deteriorate since the end of the Cold War. They played a big role in success in the Cold War. So we have to pay attention to both the military and the non-military because we are in a struggle that particularly in terms of China is going to go on a long time. The one place where the Cold War is not a meaningful comparison is that uh, the Soviet Union was essentially a unidimensional power. They were a military power and they had oil and gas and that was it. China has a huge economy. uh, The second possibly soon to be the first largest economy in the world. And they have enormous resources to carry out these capabilities. They have devoted huge amounts of money to these non-military instruments that I was talking about and uh, to developing those. Belt and Road is just one example of those. And, and so the contest with China is much more complex and will be much more difficult, I think, than the contest with the
1: Soviet Union. Certainly, Robert Gates, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. That's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thank you very much indeed for listening, and please do join us again next week when we'll have another deep exploration of the big issues that are driving our world. Thank you, and goodbye.
0: This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance, for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more, learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com wsj.